Good morning, everybody. You look marvelous. It's a fine summer morning. Hey, if uh, you have not been baptized in an adult, as an adult, I encourage you to consider that. If, if this is uh, your spiritual body, um, it's not for one of the classes. It doesn't mean you're going to be baptized, but just check it out. Uh, just to find out kind of why we do it the way we, the way we do. And, um, and you might end up uh, seeing that this is something that you want to be part of. And so we're going to have this. It's always a real blessed time. On July 21st, after the service, we'll go on to Lake Phelan and have this baptismal service. So I encourage you, whether you're being baptized or not, to set that aside as uh, something that uh, you want to be part of. Come and join us on the beach. And uh, it's just always a good time. Hope you're enjoying the summer. I love summer. I just love summer. I uh, really wish it was always this way. The change of leaves is fine. That's beautiful. That's just what comes after that. I could really do without. I'm, I'm, I've had enough snow for one lifetime. So, but uh, it's just so fun. The other day I went out, uh, 92 degrees, and I went out for a five-mile run. And, and I just, oh, you're just soaking with sweat. You're hot. You're exhausted. You feel like you're going to pass out. I love it. It's just like, ah, oh, this is great. But, all right. Well, we are uh, continuing our speedy study of the book of Colossians. Uh, hovering for several months on one verse. Uh, doing a little mini-series on love and on judgment. Uh, I think this will be the last of this series, but the Spirit bloweth where it listeth, so we'll see. But um, uh, I, I think we're going to end it with this, because I want to talk about, we've been talking about one kind of judgment that is negative. It's the original sin of the Bible. But there's another kind of judgment that is actually good and necessary. Uh, I like to call it discernment, just to keep it distinct from the kind of judgment that's bad. And so today's message is entitled A Community of Discernment because we'll see that the church is called to be a community that discerns. And there's a kind of judgment in that. But it's very different from the kind of judgment that we're prohibited from having. So the verse that we're looking at, been looking at for several months here, is Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. I'm sure uh, those of you who have been here this whole time have got this memorized by now. Where Paul says, above all, put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, put on that kind of love. And love, we've seen, in contrast to all the crazy definitions that we are given in the culture, um, the Bible defines love, the kind of love that God is, and the kind of love that we're supposed to live in. It defines it by pointing us to Calvary. And so John says, here's how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. Uh, above all, the most important thing, the defining mark of the kingdom, the defining, the distinguishing feature of God, and therefore the most distinguishing feature of the children of God, is that they clothe themselves with, day in and day out, the kind of love that God revealed when he laid aside his divine glory, became a human being, and then dove into our hell and died a hellish death on the cross while we were yet enemies. He ascribed to us unsurpassable worth by virtue of the fact that he was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for us. And that, when we were in a state where we could have deserved it, could not have deserved it less. That's what genuine agape love looks like. That's the kind of God that God is in his eternal nature. And when we are born from above, when we've submitted our life to him and asked the spirit to come into our life, as we just sang about a moment ago, uh, that DNA gets implanted in us. And if we yield to that and cultivate that, we take on the character of Abba Father. And therefore, our lives begin to look like Calvary. 
we become a people who are willing to sacrifice of our own resources and time and energy, and if need be, even our life, for the sake of others, regardless of whether they're our friend or our foe, whether they benefit us or are threatening us, it doesn't matter. The kind of love that God is, is a unilateral love. It flows outward, out of an inner fullness. It's not a quid pro quo kind of a love, the love that the world knows, uh, where it's basically a deal, where I'll love you because of things that you bless me with, and you love me because of how I bless you. No, the kingdom kind of love, the kind of love that God is, the kind of love that sets us apart, is a unilateral love, unconditional love, whereby we ascribe unsurpassable worth to others at cost to ourselves, when necessary, when appropriate, um, and we do it unconditionally. Uh, Jesus says, love like this, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the distinguishing mark of the kingdom. The most important thing for us as kingdom people to do every day is to put on this love. The goal, the primary goal of every day should be to see to what degree can we love like this, nonstop. Wherever we go, wherever we meet, whatever circumstances we're in, the primary goal is to love like this. If we don't love like this, Paul tells us, we've seen this, that um, if we don't love like this, then there's nothing else that we do that is worth anything. There's nothing else that we believe that's worth anything. You can have all the right beliefs in the world. You can have supernatural faith. You can do great deeds. You can work miracles. But if it's not motivated by this kind of love and isn't done to further this kind of love, it's altogether worthless. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. This is it, folks. This is it. We're to look like a cross community, a cross community, a cruciform community. Now, the main obstacle to this we've seen is the original sin of the Bible. It's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is why it's considered the foundational sin of the Bible, because it blocks us from doing what is the main thing we're supposed to do. Really, it blocks us from being the kind of people we're supposed to be. Uh, and it's, it's, it's judgment, where we think we know, we think we're omniscient. We have this fallen omniscience mechanism when we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We think we can be like God in terms of how we judge. We're created to be like God in terms of how we love. But instead, we try to be like God in terms of how we judge. And the minute we start doing that, we can no longer be like God in terms of how we love. Only God can love perfectly and judge. The rest of us, uh, the, the, it's incompatible. Judgment is about ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to another. We contrast ourselves. We're not like that. We're the community of holy people, the right-believing people, unlike those scum. And see, now we're ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to others. It's the opposite of love, the antithesis of love, which is about ascribing worth to others at cost to ourselves. So judgment blocks uh, this, this flow of love. And so if we're going to be a people who love like this, we've got to be a people who learn to collapse all of our judgments, 99.9% of which are, take place in our heads. No one ever knows about them, but they're there, and every one of those judgmental thoughts block the flow of God's love. We are only allowed one opinion with regard to people. Unless we are, as we'll see here in a moment, unless we're in on the inside of their life, and they've invited us in uh, to uh, offer advice on, on how to live and things of that sort, unless that's happened, then our only opinion is to be the one that God gives us on Calvary. And that is that this person and that person and every other person we see whether friend or foe, was worth Jesus dying for. And we're to manifest our agreement with God about that by how we think about them, how we speak about them, how we speak to them, how we treat them. Uh, it, it, it's the essence of the kingdom. Judgment blocks 
the flow of that happening. One more verse I want to look at before we turn to the right kind of judgment. And this is a verse that just hit me. I tweeted on this yesterday. It's just been blowing me away. It's 1 Corinthians 4. This is so, you guys, this is so freeing and liberating if we internalize it. It is so, it just gets to the root of everything. It's hardly ever taught. In fact, usually the opposite is taught. Uh, religion incarnates judgment. We preach salvation as, or the fall as though it was salvation. It, all religions, including, as we saw last week, the Christian religion, embodies judgment where you feed off the contrast. Uh, whereas the true gospel, it does the opposite of that. It is so liberating. So Paul says this. Um, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, listen to this. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Paul doesn't even trust his own brain when it comes to assessing his own life. I feel innocent, but that doesn't mean I am. But I'm not even going to judge myself. What's the point? It is the Lord who judges me. That's the Lord who judges everybody. Therefore, judge nothing. Everyone say nothing. (laughs) Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And then at that time, everyone will receive their praise from God. Or not. Look, at there'll be a judgment, Paul is saying. God alone is the one who can do that. And the judgment day is simply where God's going to turn the light on and we'll see what is real. That's the judgment of God. What's real? He turns the light on so the darkness that's hidden now gets exposed. All the secrets get exposed. What is real? Right now we only see appearances, but appearances can be very deceiving. Uh, On that day, everything will become known, and whatever is consistent with the love of God will be refined and purified and brought into the kingdom, and whatever is not consistent with the kingdom of God will will be burned up in that same process. The love of God will purify what can be purified and will destroy whatever needs to be destroyed. Uh, But God alone can do that. And so Paul is saying, since God is very good at the job that he does, what is the point of having any opinion about anything? I don't even judge myself. What's the point? I'll know the truth when when it's revealed. Uh, I I, I can't trust my own fallen brain right here and now. Uh, And so he sets that aside. And in doing this, he is manifesting what it is to be free of our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, this is a declaration of freedom here, folks, uh, where you understand that all you, you, you see the bondage of this life under the oppression of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The bondage of living in this uh, addiction to assessments and, and contrast and evaluations and critical thinking, and you look and you get an opinion about everything. This nonstop gossip column in your in your head, which you're probably so used to, you don't even notice it. But it's got an opinion about everything, as though you were a king of the earth and the arbiter of good taste and good parenting and, and, and good skills or whatever. And we just sit in judgment over this, have all these opinions, neurons popping in our head, most of which are just our brain going on autopilot based on the, the misinformation it received growing up. But it's a nonstop popping machine, evaluating, assessing, critically analyzing. Oh, look at that. I can't believe that. And every one of those thoughts blocks the flow of God's love into us and through us. It's bondage. It's hell. It's the accuser. The accuser has made us little accusers. But Paul sees that when you trust, when you genuinely trust God to be judge of the earth, and your whole identity is in in Jesus Christ, then you can set all of that aside. Opinions are worthless. 
Who gives a rip about your stupid opinions? Uh, as though you were God. Paul says, I don't care about my own opinions of myself. No, no, God will judge me. I, I, I'm just going to live in love right here and right now. Everything else will take care of, of itself. And it's only to the degree that we set aside all those judgments and evaluations and critical assessments, only to that degree can we possibly live in the kind of love that we're called to live in. Because every one of those judgments blocks, it corks up the flow of that love. We are, think of it this way. It's only insofar as we can see God as he's revealed on the cross and see ourselves as we're defined on the cross and see others as they're defined on the cross. Only to that degree can we live in the love of the cross. When the only opinion we have is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's who God is. That's who I am. That's uh, who everyone else is. And we look at the world and we look at God through the lens of the cross. And now we're empowered to love with the love of the cross. As you uh, agree with God that the cross defines all of this, then you just manifest your agreement in how you think and how you speak and how you act. But see, insofar as we give any credence to our silly, stupid, demonic, accusatory opinions um, and, and become religious parasites that feed off of the worth of people rather than feeding people, well, insofar as we do that, then we're, gonna, we're not going to live in the reality and the freedom of the cross. And some of you know firsthand uh, some others are still still need to learn firsthand, but I've spoken with some of you who have who when the coin drops in the slot, and you see how radical this is, and you wake up to all the judgments in your brain, and you learn just to set those aside. When you notice this or that, or what you think disgusting or don't approve of all, when you when you wake up to all that chatter and can just set it aside in order to agree with God, it is so freeing, it is exhilarating, it is is so empowering. Uh, there's nothing like it. It's beautiful. It, it's, it's, you walk into a, a depth of joy you otherwise never would, would, would have. You don't realize, until you're free of it, you, you can't possibly see the, just how life-sucking and exhausting and depressing and oppressive all those judgments are. It's hard to play God. It really is. To be judge of the earth, man, to be the policeman of the world, the one who's got the right opinions, and if only the world would agree with you, well, then the world would be a great place. Man, that's a heavy burden to carry, and you don't even realize you're carrying it uh, until you wake up to it and then can begin to set it aside. And when you no longer have to be the moral policeman of the world, the savior of the world, the right judge of the world with all the right opinions, uh, man, it just frees you to be able to love. Sadly, what demonic religion does is it conditions you to feel guilty about doing that. You feel guilty if you don't judge. Because that means you're condoning sin. As though you yourself are sinless. A, uh, you guys, we, we're called to be free. And, and when the sun sets free, is free indeed. And it's a beautiful kind of freedom. It's so beautiful. Just to set that aside. God will judge. He'll take care of all that. And even if the person is threatening you, well, God will take care of that. Uh, you know, don't worry about that. Don't take justice in your own hands. That's why Paul says, leave it all to God. Romans 12. Set aside all vengeance. Make room for God's wrath. Don't crowd God out with your wrath. Make room for God's wrath. Uh, and instead, you give your enemies something to eat when they're hungry and something to drink when they're thirsty. Uh, you can only do that if you're freed from all that diabolical assessment. So that is the, the bad kind of judgment. That's the original sin, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's a different kind of judgment that I want to talk about now. And, and this, this, this kind of judgment is not only okay, it's actually necessary. It's good. Um, the word krino in Greek... And that's the word of the word for judgment. And there's several different forms of it, diacrino, katakrino. But the, the, the root of it means to separate or to distinguish. We get the word critic from it. Uh, to separate. The bad kind of judgment that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a, a separation of people. 
where you separate yourself from somebody to feed off the contrast. That never binds everything together. That's the opposite of love that binds together. That separates. Like all the world's violence is ultimately the result of that kind of judgment. But there's a, a, a good kind of separation, and that is where we don't separate people, but we separate things. We distinguish things. We distinguish between what is good and evil, what's true or false, what's consistent with the kingdom, or what's not consistent with the kingdom. And so, for example, Hebrews 5 speaks about this kind of a judgment when it says, But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's the word there, to distinguish good from evil. You're not separating yourself as the good person away from the evil people, as though you yourself were, were uh, less sinful than they are. No, our attitudes to be that we are the worst of sinners. Whatever sins we see in others are the least. So we're not separating from people, but we are separating things. And it's a sign of maturity that you're, you've trained yourself to do that. What is good? What is evil? What is helpful? What's not helpful? What is consistent with the kingdom? What is not consistent with the kingdom? And this is a kind of discernment. I like to call it discernment just to keep it clear that we're not, to, to not get confused with the, the, the judgment that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This discernment is, is to characterize the body of Christ. There needs to be in the body relationships that we have with people who help us discern things in our life. We can't grow in Christ without this. We're to be a community of discernment distinguishing things. And so Peter says, for example, that the time has come when judgment must begin at the house of God or God's household, God's family. Within God's family, and this is not just to say everybody who professes faith in Christ, but people that you have a covenant kind of relationship with, uh, within the family of God, there needs to be a, a time for discernment. Note that it begins at the household of God, with the family of God. This isn't to say that we are to uh, put ourselves in a position to uh, help everyone in the world do this. Uh, we, will, we will be the moral police of the world. No, it begins with the house of God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? None. It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, Paul is saying, it's none of our business. Man, I wish it was that obvious to Christians today. We've got no business judging people outside the church, holding them accountable as though they were a kingdom people when, when they haven't signed up for this. No, but are you not to judge those inside? And Paul is speaking here about a person who's involved in gross immorality in their church. And he's saying, uh, is it not in the, in, in the church of God, uh, the community that's called to live as a faithful bride of Christ, are you not to use discernment here? And to say what is good, what is evil, what is helpful, what's not helpful. And folks, this guy in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother, this isn't helpful. This is not kingdom stuff. And so Paul's saying you've got to exercise discernment and put them out. He's not saying to hate the guy or anything like that. He's just simply saying this is not consistent with the kingdom. Uh, those outside the community, uh, no, we've got no business judging those. Folks who think that it's their job to impose their opinions uh, on others as though they were the least of sinners. Uh, those who think that it's the job of the church to pass the righteous laws in the land, always against other people's sin, not our own sin. Those who think they're doing God's work by, by, by put, grabbing on the power to enforce their superior wills on others, they're just misguided. They need to really take seriously this teaching of Paul 
Uh, Jesus never did anything like that. Uh, no one in the New Testament ever did anything like that. The only folks you find operating that way in the New Testament are the Pharisees. And Jesus rebukes them for doing it. Um, we're to see ourselves as the worst of sinners, not the least of sinners. And, and when folks operate this way, all they do is they just justify people viewing Christians as intolerant, hypocritical buttheads because that's how we're acting when we do that kind of thing. No, it's, it's not to police the world, but they're in the church, in the church among those who have entered into a covenant to say, I want to live as the faithful bride of Christ. Now there's got to be discernment. There's got to have, we, have, we need to have relationships where people help us discern what in our life is, is helping and what in our life is hindering our call to live as the faithful bride of Christ. And what we need to know is this, that in the, the, the early church, uh, the church was structured in a way that was conducive to this kind of discernment. Uh, whereas so much of the contemporary church is not structured in a way that's conducive for this sort of discernment. Most people today, when they think of church, they think primarily of going to a building uh, once a week uh, among mostly strangers to sing some songs together and to hear a message. And that's church. In fact, for a lot of folks, that's what it means to be Christian. You go to this meeting once a week. Um, now, the, the, those meetings are great. We're doing it right now. This is fine. God uses it. God shows up. People's lives are changed. Wonderful. But see, in the New Testament, that wasn't the primary unit of the Christian faith. It wasn't the primary expression of the church. They did have large meetings. There's nothing wrong with that. They met in Solomon's uh, court. Uh, Acts 5 tells us when it was possible, they have a citywide meeting and they all worship together. That's great. But the main thing they did is they met in each other's houses. We know that they didn't have any special church buildings um, until about the 4th, 5th century. Uh, before that time, Christians met in houses. We read about this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And they met daily, usually, and they would break bread together, they'd have fellowship together, they'd study the word together, and they did uh, mission work together. And they were in a hostile environment. This was a persecuted people uh, who would bond together on a regular basis. These houses couldn't uh, uh, fit more than 20 or 30 people, and that was the size of the church back in those days. Um, it, it was small military battalions of soldiers who saw themselves as stationed behind enemy lines. And uh, they knew that they needed to have each other's backs. They were there to help one another live as the faithful bride of Christ, to swim upstream in their pagan empire culture and to manifest a different kind of culture. They, they knew they were there for one another and they had to help one another. And when you're meeting on a daily basis with 28 to 30 other people um, and, and you're in this kind of a context, it's very conducive to people getting to know you and, and getting on the inside of your life. And therefore, getting a wisdom about how to discern, help you discern what is helpful and not helpful in living out the kingdom walk. That's so important. Because you can't do discernment with strangers. To be able to discern something in someone else's life or for them to discern something in your life, it really takes some investment. It takes, it takes a kind of a, an explicit agreement that that's part of our relationship. And it takes sharing some life together, doing ministry together. The early church had it, but we to a large degree don't. In fact, everything in the New Testament tells us uh, about how we're to treat one another, it presupposes this small group kind of a context. 
uh, when the, there's almost 57, 57, 50, 56, 57 different teachings in the New Testament about what we're to do towards one another, to love one another and to help one another, encourage one another, speak the truth to one another, hold one another accountable. There's all these one another's. And all of them, or almost all of them, presuppose that we're sharing life with a small group of people and doing ministry with a small group of people so we know one another. Very few of these one another's can be done here in a large group context where most people don't know most of the other people. Um, this is not conducive to doing the one another's of the kingdom. It all presupposes this. Church discipline, for example. The way it's spoken of, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18, and Paul applies it in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, it all presupposes that, that uh, folks are, are, are living in community in a significant way. Their lives are overlapping and intersecting with one another. So Jesus says that if someone sins against you, you're to, you're to go to them alone. If that doesn't work, you bring two or three others. And if that doesn't work, you bring it before the whole church. And if the person still won't repent, well, then you're to treat them as a non-believer because that's how they're living. The community is a community that is going in this direction as a faithful bride of Christ, a community of reconciliation. And if a person absolutely refuses to be reconciled, well, then you, the community has to discern that this is simply not consistent with what the community is called to be. Now, see... That's very, if you're dealing with a group of 20 to 30 people who are meeting on a daily basis in a hostile environment, uh, to, to bring a person before that crowd whom they all know and they're on the inside of, that's very different than if I were to bring to you a stranger that you don't know and then call on us to make a decision about their life. We can't do that because most people wouldn't know him. See, what happens is people, because very few of us have the kind of relationships that they had in the New Testament. We grab hold of verses in the Bible uh, and apply them in, in our contemporary context, and they become absolutely abusive. Where you out somebody uh, before a congregation of 2,000, and 1,994 of them don't know who the person is. Well, see, they can't have a loving discernment about what's going on in this person's life. But if you're dealing with a community of 20 to 30, you can Everything in the New Testament presupposes that we have these contexts, these relationships, where we're discerning things for one another. Uh, you've got to be on the inside of a life to have a wise discernment about things. If, um, if you're looking at a stranger, you may see something that is not consistent with the kingdom, at least not in your opinion. But how do you know that that is what God wants to work on in their life? Think about it. I mean, God, we all know this, God doesn't deal with everything at once, right? It's a lifelong process. We're all in process on this. The Lord says, I want to address this, this thing in your life at one stage, but he lets everything else slide. And then he says, now it's time to address this, but he lets other things slide. And then a year later, it's time to address this. It's a process. It's not an all or nothing thing. We know that. We're, we're all in process on this. So how do you know? Though you see something on the outside of a person's life, if you don't know anything about them, if they're a stranger to you, even if they're a professing believer, how do you know that that's what God wants to work on? Lives are complicated, delicate things. And when we just barge in there and have our opinions on stuff, we may be well-intentioned, but you're a bull in a china shop. Uh, unless your life is intersecting with the person and you have a relationship where you've agreed to speak into one, in one another's lives and to have discernment for one another, uh, then... The, you can do a great deal of harm by imposing your perceptions on someone's life about whom you know very, very little. I've got folks once in a while, far more frequently than you might realize, who come up and they've got an opinion about me. I love it. 
uh, here's what I think is wrong with your life. And uh, they'll, they'll, they'll tell me. And that's fine, and I'll take it, and I'll consider it, and God may be speaking through them. You know, that, that's possible. But it doesn't have nearly the force uh, of, of when folks that I'm in community with who know me, who share life with me, and, and I know they're invested in my life, and I'm invested in theirs, and we have permission to speak into one another's lives. When they discern something in my life, well, it means something very different. It's got authority. And I know they're not judging me. I know they're doing this because they love me. And they know that I want to more than anything else. I, I want to be growing in Christ's likeness. And they're there to help me do it. And I'm here to help them do it. But when a stranger comes up, it's like, well, you don't know anything about me. You have no idea about my life or what's going on. Uh, you're just, you, you, you're seeing the outside of things. And maybe your perception of that isn't accurate. And I don't know what their motives are. Maybe their motive is, is kind of a self-righteous thing. Maybe they're feeding off this. I don't know. Correct discernment happens in small group contexts. We're inside of each other's lives. I shared this uh, experience uh, last year, the year before, but it bears repeating. I, I was uh, at 20-some years ago at Church of the Open Door, and I was teaching this class, and there's this, they identified themselves as a gay couple, uh, these two women, and they wanted me to counsel them in their relationship uh, after the class for an hour every week. And I felt like I was supposed to do that. So after the class, we'd always go out for an hour or two. Uh, a few cases went longer than that. And we'd just talk. Now, see, here's the thing. Um, I, I can imagine uh, some Christians would maybe hear about this and say, well, you should confront that relationship and put a stop to that. It's the first thing you should do. That's not of God. Uh, but see, all, that already presupposes that I know more about these folks than I know. What do I know what they're doing in private? Uh, for all I know, they have a, a perfectly godly, loving, uh, Jonathan David kind of same gender uh, love for one another. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's something very praiseworthy about that. We need more of that. Uh, I, I, and, and, and I don't know anything about what's going on in private. They haven't uh, invited me in on their bedroom yet, and it's rude to go into a person's bedroom when they haven't invited you. So I don't know anything about that. Uh, but even beyond that... Um, as I spoke with this, these two wonderful people, it became very clear to me that whatever might be going on in private, and I don't know anything about that, but uh, whatever might be going on, uh, this love relationship they had was the healthiest thing they had going on in their life. I mean, they had layers and layers and layers of, of, of terrible abuse uh, and trauma and so many things that were just uh, messed up. And in the case of one of them, at least, maybe both, but certainly for one of them, the only thing that was keeping her from killing herself was this relationship. So you, lives are complex, delicate things. And if you barge in there and say, help, you got to put an end to this. Well, that will result in one of them committing suicide. And you think that's really God's, God's will. I don't think so. You see, you've got to be on the inside of a life in a significant way. And, and when we're not on the inside, our only job is to agree with God that that person was worth Jesus dying for. Whether you see them in the Mall of America or here at Woodland Hills Church in a church service, I don't care what you see, I don't care who they're with, I don't care what they're doing, your job is to just agree with God that they were Jesus dying for. And if it turns out that you are called to be in community with them and they with you and you have an agreed understanding, now there's a place for discernment. Uh, and it's an important place. But outside of that, we're to realize what we don't know. And what we don't know is almost everything. <laughs> we're, we're ignorant. And so we just bless. We just live in a blessing in that way. The reality is, folks, we all need, we all need other eyes on our life. If we're serious about swimming upstream in the culture and living a distinct kind of life, we all need to have other people speaking into our life. 
Um, you know, we're, we're social creatures. We are all, we will conform to our social environment. And so we will invariably conform to the larger environment of the culture unless we've got a subculture of people around us who are with us trying to live a different kind of life. We need to have role models around us. Even leaders need to have role models around them uh, so that we're, we're reinforcing our commitment to live a distinct kind of life. If we don't have that kind of subculture community, we will invariably conform to the broader culture and we won't even realize we're doing it. It just happens in the sea. We're social creatures. It's how we're wired. Not only that, but I think we can all agree that we've got blind spots. We all have blind spots. We, we, none of us monitor ourselves very well. We think we do. That's because we're so stupid. We, 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 we deceive ourselves. We kid ourselves. Uh, we're not good at having an accurate perception of ourselves. We've all got blind spots. And uh, I need other eyes on this life if I'm really serious about swimming upstream in the culture and living a distinct kingdom kind of life. I need folks who know me well enough and can notice, and people who are committed to me, and I know they're committed to me, so I know they're not judging me when they confront stuff, but I need folks to say, Greg, uh, you know, is your passion waning a little bit? It seems like the fire is, is kind of waning. Or, or are, are you staying committed to your family? Do you have the right priorities? Are, are you being influenced by maybe some things in the culture and how you spend your money or whatever? I need those eyes on me. Um, and so do you if we're serious about swimming upstream. The easier thing is to not have that because then you can just do your own thing and feel good about it, feel innocent. So even Paul says, just because you feel innocent doesn't mean that you are because you've got blind spots. Uh, we all need other eyes on this, uh, on our lives. Now, here, here's the thing. Um, we're social creatures. We have blind spots. We all need this. It's kingdom community. We're to be part of the body of Christ, which means that we're to be attached. No lone rangers. But this is, folks, a very hard sell in America. Uh, maybe it's a hard sell everywhere, but it's especially in American culture. And Padrishners, if this is, if you're listening to this uh, and you're not in Western culture, especially not in America, just apply it to wherever you are at. But I'm going to speak for a moment just about this culture. See, this culture was founded on rugged individualism. Uh, this culture was founded largely as a reaction to the tyranny of kings imposing their will on us. This is a culture of rugged individualists and has created really an idolatry of individualism. Look at the foundation of the culture is uh, that everybody has the right to pursue their own way on life, liberty, and happiness. That's kind of the foundation mantra of this culture, which means that no one has the right to tell me what to do. I can pursue my life, liberty, and happiness however I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and no one's got the right. So long as I don't hurt anybody, no one's got the right to tell me what to do. It's, a, it's a really an idol of individualism. And then with that goes another idol, and this is the idol of tolerance. If, if a, a core value is everyone has the individual right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness however they want, as long as they don't hurt anybody, well then, the second thing is everyone has the responsibility to tolerate everyone else's own individual pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And so in our culture, in Western culture, tolerance becomes the supreme virtue. It, it's the most important thing. The one, the one group of people that is not tolerated in this culture are those who come across as being intolerant. Tolerance is the, the supreme virtue. You can see how it, how it, uh, how the two go hand in hand. An idol of individualism giving rise to an idol of tolerance. Now here's the thing. 
As, as, as pagan cultures go, I think those are marvelous ideals. Marvelous ideals. I would much rather live in a country that is for rugged individualism and do your own thing as long as you don't hurt anybody else and we must all tolerate everyone else doing their own thing. I'd much rather live in that country than in a country where the king or the imam or the ayatollah gets to decree what their will is and everyone has to agree or you get your head cut off. I'll take America, thank you very much. As pagan cultures go, it's, it's the best thing going. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for that, I'm sure I would have been burned at the stake a long time ago. So I, I believe me, I'm I'm pro I'm pro American freedom, but to say that those are good ideals for the kingdom of God or for for the kingdoms of the world, the best ideals out there is not to say that they're Christian. In fact, if you look if you really look at it carefully, uh, these values, the idol of of individualism and the idol of of tolerance, they're absolutely antithetical to the kingdom. They're antithetical to the call of Christ. In that sense, they're anti-Christ. America's founding ideals are antithetical to the kingdom because, see, the kingdom begins not when I pursue my own individual right to life, liberty, and happiness. The kingdom begins when I die to my right to life, liberty, and happiness. And the kingdom begins when I die to my right of privacy. No one can speak into my life. The kingdom of God begins when I'm no longer pursuing my interests, but I'm pursuing the interest of Abba Father and the interest of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God begins when I pray the Jesus prayer, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so the kingdom of God die, begins when I die to the idol of individualism and the idol of tolerance, and I'm willing to let myself be inconvenienced uh, to help others live out the call to be a faithful bride of Christ. The kingdom of God is absolutely antithetical to the founding ideals of, of, of this country. The, the, the country's great as pagan countries go. It's the best thing going. But it's not the kingdom of God. <laughs> no, it's the opposite of the kingdom of God. And folks, if we're serious about being kingdom people and putting on display the, the beautiful, outlandish, Calvary-looking character of Abba Father, we've got to die to this American individualism and this, this idol of tolerance. And we've got to be willing to say, no, we're called for community, to be in relationship with others. To join the body of Christ is to enter into a covenant. It's the new covenant, the New Testament. That's the word covenant. And it's the covenant with God and with other people that we are going to be the faithful bride of Christ. And we're called to help one another do it. Uh, and you just can't do most of that in a large group meeting like this. This is fine. There's nothing wrong with this. God uses it. But we've always taught here that the primary unit of the Christian faith is not a large group. It's, it's, a, it's a much smaller group. So we have here at Willow Hills Church, we've tried a, every possible thing in the world to create this. And the, the last two years, we've been piloting this ministry called Sojourners. Some of you are, are part of that where folks take uh, two courses, 13 weeks apiece. And um, uh, it, it kind of prepares them for this. And at the end of the, the two courses, they make a decision as to whether or not they want to join this missional community. It's a community of 20 to 30 people. It really is the, the New Testament expression of the church. So we're kind of planning churches here. Um, we've right now got three of them. We're about ready to, to birth a fourth one. We're just looking for, for more, raising more leaders. Because it's a pilot program, we're not to the point where we can just say, hey, we want everyone right now, this minute, to take this class. But I would encourage you to begin to explore it. Uh, hopefully, we'll, as we raise up leaders, we'll be able to do that in a year or two. Right now, uh, they're just saying, look at some of the courses that we'll be offering in the fall uh, that prepare folks for this kind of a thing. Uh, but then others of us are already in relationships um, where, that are kingdom relationships. And even in the sojourners thing, what you need to know is this. 
The real deep stuff doesn't happen with 30 people. It happens usually with two or three. Uh, that, and so we have what we call core groups in, in the in soldiers ministry where these are folks who meet on a regular basis. And, and that's where we ask questions, sometimes tough questions, like, like what's going on, what are you struggling with, uh, how, you know, what projects are you working on, uh, what do you know how to be held accountable to, how are things going at home, and so on and so on. Um, we all need those relationships, whether it's going to be part of the official Woodland Hills ministry or, or they're just relationships you have on your own. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Um, if you're not in a community like this of 20 to 30 people or, or however many there are, but where you're doing ministry together and worshiping together and studying together, uh, I encourage you to check out the Sojourners Ministry. Um, and I encourage us to ask the question, all of us, what relationships do we have now already that maybe they're ripe for the kingdom? We just got to bring the kingdom to them. I mean, one of the sad things about this idol of individualism and idol of tolerance is that in, the, in this country, even, even the closest of friends rarely speak into each other's lives. And when, they, when, when, when someone offers discernment, it comes across as judgment because if we buy into this ideology, uh, yeah, how dare you judge me when the person is just offering discernment? But see, we may have relationships that are conducive to this. It's just a matter of saying to the person, hey, I, I think I know you well enough and you know me well enough to... Would you want to consider making this a kingdom covenant? And, and can we bring the kingdom here into this relationship? Um, we've got resources that will be uh, made available with this message online as to kind of, the kind of questions you might want to ask. Once a week, get together, and you ask questions like maybe just study a passage and how does it apply to your life? And then the next week you say, well, how did that work? It's just a matter of being intentional about working on stuff in our life as we're striving to be the, the, the faithful bride of Christ. Bring the kingdom to your small groups. Bring the kingdom to your, your close relationships. Uh, and in and, and doing that, see what we're doing is declaring war on the idol of individualism and war on the idol of tolerance. And now we're in a position that's conducive to really manifesting the uniquely beautiful, distinct, very countercultural kingdom of God. And that, folks, is the bottom line. When it comes to strangers, folks that you're not on the inside of, uh, you don't have any kind of unique relationship with, you're allowed one opinion. Train yourselves to collapse all other thoughts. When you notice that what you don't agree with, who cares about your opinion? Even you shouldn't care about your opinion. Set it aside as worthless. Worse than worthless. If you hang on to it, it's going to block the flow of love. Set it aside and just love the person. And look for opportunities to manifest that. But beyond that, in the kingdom, folks, in the household of God, We've got to, we still ascribe unsurpassable worth to all people at all times, but the way we express that in covenant relationships is by going beyond having this opinion that Jesus has died for folks, but now we're going to help one another grow and develop. And that's where we can use and we need discernment. Pray about relationships that you could bring discernment to to help you live out your call to be a kingdom person. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like the prayer teams to come up here. Uh, if you are here tonight, this morning, and have any need that could uh, use prayer, please come up here and share it with these folks. Everything you share is, is in confidence. Uh, they would just love to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're not submitted to him, I encourage you to come up here and, and, and uh, start now. Just begin that walk by surrendering your life uh, to him. If you aren't baptized, I encourage you to stop by at the hub and, and find out where those classes are and sign up for, for one of those. Would you stand as I ask the Holy Spirit to seal this message on our hearts?
Abba Father, I pray, God, as we leave this place, you will, God, set us free, every one of us, uh, free like the Apostle Paul was free, that we trust all judgment to you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, seal that on our hearts. Keep us awake uh, to unleash the magnificent power of cross-like love in our lives. And then, Holy Spirit, as we leave this place, will you give us discernment on the kind of relationships we need to have to grow as kingdom people. Uh, God, uh, reveal to us who in our life uh, we could bring the kingdom to and begin to operate as the bride, having discernment for one another. Thank you, God, for calling us, for redeeming us, restoring us, empowering us, infusing us, cleansing us, making us clean, and uh, making us your warriors of the kingdom. As we leave this place to love on the world, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, God bless you guys. Go on love.